I remember telling Richard Thaler this because um, it's interesting. Uh, that conference, he came and spoke with me to a group of about 600 investors at the bottom of the financial crisis in New York City, underneath the whale at the Museum of Natural History. This was like one of the greatest moments in my career. So imagine this, you're in New York, 600 people that have entrusted me and my team with their investments. They all lost half the value of their retirement accounts, half the value of their real estate. Many of them lost their jobs. The world was on fire and nobody thought it was gonna ever recover again. And I'm sitting there and I actually had a conversation and Richard joined me and we were talking about risk premiums. And the whole conversation was like, if markets do a good job pricing risk, then low prices should mean high expected future returns. I launched the Gerstein Fisher Multifactor Growth Fund at that moment. And my message to all these investors were, now's a great time to increase your risk. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Greg Fisher, founder of Quant Capital and pioneer in multi-factor investing. Greg shares with us his experiences in building a successful asset management firm, the importance of good investor behavior over time, metrics used to identify good growth stocks, and why he has now turned his focus to finding and investing in innovative small cap companies through the use of alternative data sets. As you'll see, Greg is smart, humble, and offers tons of common sense for all different levels of investors. Thanks so much. Please enjoy this discussion with Quant Capital's Greg Fisher. Greg, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Justin and Jack. It's good to be here. In preparing for uh, the talk we're going to have, uh, we came across a, a, a Bloomberg interview that you did, actually. And um, it, the, the title of the, the interview was Greg Fisher sold his drum kit and parlayed it into a $3 billion firm. So I thought maybe that would be a good place to start learning about your musical interests and how the, the selling of that drum kit actually got you into the investing world. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's a, it's a, I also like superheroes, so this is kind of like my origin story, you know, how I became who I am. So I've been, I've been playing drums for, for my whole life. I started when I was a little kid. And uh, when I was 13 years old, my father bought me a drum kit. And I remember it was like the greatest day in my life. I came home. It was this old Slingerland jazz set, red sparkle. It was, I wish anything that I could have that drum kit back. I actually have gone looking for it, but uh, unfortunately that wasn't possible. But what I did when I got out of college, um, I sold this drum set for 900 bucks. I bought a computer and I started my investment management business. And that was in 1992 with the proceeds from the sale of this drum set. Um, I never worked for anyone, uh, never went to work for a big investment firm. I basically grew up in finance. My uh, family owned an accounting business and still does in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, basically grew up doing tax returns for individuals and I hated accounting. Uh, but actually what I learned in that process was how to organize data. And if you can imagine being in New York City in the 70s and 80s, 
uh, my generation being the first generation of home computer users, you know, all of a sudden I had about a thousand investors working with every firm on Wall Street at the time uh, and all of their transactions that I had access to where my job was to do the Schedule D on the tax return. You know, I would be putting in the date of purchase, the date of sale, what an investor paid for something, what they sold it for over and over and over again. And eventually, by the time I went off to college, still owning the drum set, took it with me to college, um, I had several hundred thousand cells in Lotus spreadsheets where I was able to look at things like average holding periods, what people were buying, what they were selling. Also had some early experience to how people made financial decisions, you know, some of this investor behavior that we might talk about later. Anyway, when I got out of school, I had sort of dreamed up this idea of using um, you know, computers, technology, and uh, analytical data to build investment portfolios, which in 1992 was a new idea. You know, back then there was no internet, no text messaging, uh, no email. Um, you know, the idea of even having a computer was kind of still a new thing in business. At any rate, I started my firm in 1992 called Gerstein Fisher, managing assets using quantitative methods with this $900. Then, uh, as my, the, in 2016, I, I sold that company. By the time we sold it, we had almost $5 billion of assets that we were responsible for, both on discretion and that we were advising on. Um, I had a team of over 60 people and a whole group of uh, investors that were uh, you know, nice enough to entrust me with their wealth. Um, but I sold 100% of that company in 2016. Uh, and actually the first thing I did at that point is I built a music studio in my basement, bought a new drum kit, and I'm uh, back to playing the drums. Nice, nice. Took some, took some time to uh, get, get on the drums again. I like it. Um, and you're, it's pretty amazing that the first like real, I mean, you were working for your family's accounting business, but then out of college, you founded this company, you built a very successful money management firm for, for 20 years. I'm sure there was highs and lows, but you know, what were sort of the biggest lessons that you can share from running and building a, a, you know, a successful asset management firm for that long? It's a really great question. And, you know, unfortunately, like it took, it took me 30 years to figure all this out. But, um, you know, when I started, it was me by myself. And then eventually we had one person, two people, three people, you know, as you're building your team. But, um, you know, when I was in college, I remember practically falling asleep in, uh, you know, organizational design classes and, you know, what we used to call human resources or something like that. Um, you know, I guess I didn't have the appreciation that I do now. And I learned along the way for how important your team is, um, the people you put around you and not only the employees or the, your, your people working with you, but also your partners and investors, um, your clients. So the, the people you surround yourself with are so critically important to your success. Um, the culture, how inspired your team members are. Turns out that my new investment firm, Quent Capital, uh, is investing in small, innovative growth businesses. And so much about what we're now talking about, understanding how important your team and your culture and the people around you are, really is a large part of what I'm doing in the investment business today. So my practical experience as an entrepreneur, operator, portfolio manager, building a business um, is really showing up now in my life in the way I think about investing in other companies. Uh, but I would just say my answer to your question, the, 
most important thing that I learned along the way wasn't about doing great regressions or statistical analysis or you know understanding multicollinearity or something like that. It was actually more about the people around me. I know some of these questions are like a blast from the past. So um, with this one, I want to ask you about one of the papers that you wrote, um, Past Performance is Indicative of Future Beliefs, where you looked at the impact of behavior on asset pricing. And I just wanted to um, ask you if you could kind of share what the major findings were on that piece of research. Certainly, and I worked on this with my co-author and good friend and advisor, Phil Maiman. Um, he actually, we were talking about music earlier, he wrote a really funny paper, I remember reading it years ago, it was uh, called Music and the Markets. And he showed the connection that uh, music had to people's risk-taking behavior, um, which is a really interesting thing worth looking at because it, it's another example of how the mood we're in the way we're feeling, what we ate for lunch, the music we listen to, um, the various things around us influence our behavior and our risk-taking behavior. Um, but anyway, uh, so rolling back, I, I mentioned that I was early to using computers for my business. And one of the things that I started doing in the early 90s is using contact management software. Now, anybody listening this to this today that's in their 20s or 30s or even 40s, like contact management software, like we all use that. Well. When I started in this business way back when, since I'm an old man now, back in the late 80s and early 90s, people were using index cards to keep notes on their contacts. We started using contact management software, and from day one, I was logging every phone call, every piece of mail, every transaction, every meeting, every note, every email with every investor that we had. And by the time I rolled into 2006 and 7, I had something like a million and a half notes and histories in a SQL database of all these different interactions. Then I remember I, uh, I had an interaction where I met with and actually Richard Thaler had spoke at one of my investor conferences right around the time he wrote his book Nudge. And I shared with him that I had this database of actual investor behavior, real life people um, that I wanted to study. And he was really excited about it. So then he introduced me to Phil Maiman, who did his PhD with Richard. That's how I met Phil. And we started doing this research on this database. That research led to a couple of papers, including the one you mentioned. Now, again, we go back from here almost 30 years on this. But what we did was we showed that, and this is not new today. So when I say this, it's going to sound like no big deal. But if you could imagine what it was like 30 years ago, we showed that the performance of the average investor in an asset class lags the average performance of the asset class itself by almost 2% a year. And we presented this model which shows this representative behavioral investor believes that next year's investment performance will match last year's investment performance. In other words, security prices have a memory it's not a complete random walk where every day everything resets. It's not really the security price that has a memory. It's all of us investing in the markets that have the memory. We all know that if I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling wonderful, my risk-taking behavior may be different than if I'm not. And what we show is that what happened to me last year, if I invested in something a year ago and it did really well, well, then I believe that it will do really well again in the following year. Now, by doing that, I am in effect lowering the future return of high performers um, because I'm 
pricing into the markets my expectation of a higher return. So I'm lowering the future return of high performers and I'm raising the future return of poor performers. And we basically show that in the data that this in fact happens, which it shouldn't be that way. It should be this random walk. But in fact, we see that security prices are serially correlated. That's why momentum exists. And we show that with actual investors. Now later, this research got quoted all over the place. We titled it past performance is indicative of future beliefs because I wanted to catch everyone's attention, which we did. Um, the idea that yesterday's performance doesn't influence tomorrow's performance is wrong. It actually does. Um, so we showed that in the paper and then later Vanguard uh, redid some stuff and quoted us and called it advisor alpha um, because we did another paper after where we tried to quantify the value of an advisor, uh, whether that be a money manager and or uh, a, a financial advisor. Um, you know, I, I think about like Warren Buffett, for example, if you've ever attended his conferences and you go there and, you know, 40,000 people in a stadium and he is so incredible on keeping people in their seats, independent of how good or bad his performance are as any given year. He is so incredible at keeping people in their seats and Keeping people in their seats explains a large percentage of the success people do or don't have when they invest. So we put a value to the value of this advisory relationship. And we just said, hey, you know, financial advisors, money managers that interact with their clients, they may be adding something like one or 2% per year to the performance that their investors earn by just keeping them in their seats. Um, and that, that research went on and put some numbers to it. There was some rigor to the analysis, but that was the conclusion, which ended up being a big hit. You, you referenced Richard Thaler. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen is, you know, we've all learned a lot more about behavior. There's a lot more research. There's a lot more people talking about it. Do you think as we've learned more about our behavior, we actually behave any better as investors? Or do you think this is stuff that's just wired into us? And, you know, that behavior gap's always going to be there regardless of what we learn. So what Phil Nyman and I wrote about in that same paper is we compared investing to dieting. Um, think about how many books there are written on how to lose weight. Um, think about how many nutritionists there are and how long this has been going on. And yet, and I, even I like, you know, kind of, kind of try to keep an eye on my weight. Right. But you know, if you put a chocolate chip cookie in front of me right this minute, I, even while I'm talking about this, I, I might eat it. Um, you know, like people don't change. Um, so I don't believe that, uh, human beings at the core will change even with all the knowledge we have. Uh, in that same paper, we write about this researcher Coates, who was trying to help people, um, uh, from binge eating in the middle of the night. Apparently there are people who like wake up in the middle of the night and just like raid their refrigerator. Um, and he did things like, he locked the refrigerator and put a key in a closet and the person would wake up and grab the key and open the refrigerator or, you know, they did all these experiments and it was just this strong force that people just couldn't fight. And in the end, we kind of created this connection, maybe advisors and people who help people um, with their sort of, uh, uh, as Richard Thaler calls these, like the decision architecture, um, you know, the way we create an environment for you to have a healthy experience. Um, so I, I think that as much as we've learned, things really haven't changed. 
I want to shift and ask about factor investing since you've, you've been in factor investing pretty much since the beginning. And, you know, one of the criticisms of factors is, you know, we, we had these great premiums in the papers that were written, but in the real world, they haven't been as good. You know, if you look at value, you know, since Fama and French, the premium is lower with momentum. People argue, you know, transaction costs in the real world eat away from it. And I'm just wondering for, you know, since factor invest, factors are so widely used right now, how should people using factors think about them going forward now, now that they're widely known? So I would say that these things have largely been widely known for a lot longer than we've been talking about factors, right? Like one of the classic factors is price to earnings or price to cash flow or price to book, you know, these sort of traditional value factors. We, we didn't call them factors, but in, I mean, it's been a hundred years we've been looking at this stuff. So a lot of this factor conversation, as I mentioned earlier, I, I have the trademark for multi-factor, which is comical because I didn't invent factor investing, but you know, it, this is really more of a way to describe what we're all doing, but we've all been doing it for much longer than the term's been flying around. So, um, you know, I, I, that's just one thing I, I want to get out of my head. But I, it is the case, though, that like when there's a good idea, like price to book, it was a great idea, right? Um, and uh, the idea of value investing was a fantastic idea. Like it actually matters the price you pay for things. I don't think that's going to ever change. Like, I think the price you pay for things will matter forever. Um, now, the nice thing about that one is you have price in the numerator so that like there's a lot of information in price. What you put in the denominator is perhaps subjective. Like in the old days, it was book value because we cared about sewing machines and plants and equipment. Maybe in the world we live in today, that stuff's not as important. Maybe the brand of a company or the team they've created or how innovative they are or like these other things that we seem to think matter more. But in the end, the price you pay for these things still matter. So, so many factors within factor investing are looking at pricing. Um, I think that isn't going away, but the more we all do the same thing, uh, probably the harder it will be for that thing to add a return premium in excess of the averages, which is what we're all trying to do. You sort of answered my next question about if value investing is dead. It doesn't appear you think that. But I'm wondering, you know, one of the arguments we've heard a lot about value investing is this whole idea that rates are perpetually low now and that, you know, your, your long duration growth stocks should do better in, in this period where rates are perpetually low. And do you think that's an argument against value investing? Do you think that's someone who's, who's following a value investing strategy, if that's something they need to think about? I think it's something to think about because, you know, well, well, first, let's just say this is a question that has been and can be answered. So the question, just to restate what you said is a question is, is there evidence that when rates are low and stay low or rates are low and go higher or they're higher and go lower, like we could study changing interest rate environments. And is there a consistent and persistent um, sort of direction that value stocks do well or don't do well, given that set of, we can look back at this and I think what we'd learn is not really, it's kind of all over the map. Like I don't, I don't think you could look back at the data and say, oh, we're in an environment where, now there are two things there. One is you have to predict the future environment and then you have to hope that those past relationships actually hold up. Like the joint probability on that, I would just say, forget it. So I would say actually value investing is not dead. 
And I don't think there's good evidence that if rates are low and stay low or rates are low and go higher or any of those combinations that being in or out of value investing is good all the time in any one of those scenarios. So the answer is you should have some value stocks in your portfolio and diversify. You mentioned price to book and intangible assets, and this is one of the things we struggle with. I mean, we tend to use a composite of value factors just because we can't figure out, you know, which ones are going to work in advance. But there are arguments at times for things like what's going on with price to book. You know, a certain factor doesn't work anymore. And I'm wondering, how, how do you think about in measuring value? Is like a composite approach a good way to do it? Or, you know, do you think investors should be looking at specific factors? I do think a composite approach is the right way to do it because there isn't any one of these things that's so powerful that you'd throw out all the others, you know, whether it's profitability as a value metric or whether it's, uh, you know, price to cash flow, price to earnings, price to book, uh, earnings yield, you know, dividends, which I think we might talk about again. You know, there's a lot of different ways of putting price in the numerator and figuring out what you put in the denominator, but it isn't that any one of those things is perfect. So I have always preferred the composite approach of diversifying across those things. Now, the problem with the composite is, do you equally weight them? You know, do you have some reason to think one's a little bit better than the other? This transaction costs, you know, I guess that's the sort of art over science, perhaps. Um, but I like the idea of a composite. Um, one other thing I'll mention and is that uh, I do think that it's not so easy to determine what's valuable these days. Um, and uh, that's a lot of where my research is, you know, this and, and, and many others too, you know, this, the talk around intangibles. And I remember like, I think it's about seven or eight years ago, I was on CNBC and I was talking to one of the folks there in an interview and, and we were talking about factor investing and I brought up the issue of intangibles. I said, factor investing and intangibles. And the problem with intangibles is they're intangible. They're hard to measure. There's a lot of ambiguity around their value. And that creates an opportunity for a money manager, but it's more difficult than just pulling information off of an income statement or balance sheet. Uh, one of the things that makes a lot of sense to investors when you talk about value is this whole idea of combining it with momentum. You know, let, let's wait. We see value in this stock, but let's wait until the market starts to recognize that value and then we'll invest in it. And you wrote a paper called Combining Value and Momentum with Ronnie Shaw and Sheridan Tittman. And I was just wondering if you could talk about what you found in terms of combining value and momentum. Sure. Well, first, I have to say, you know, Sheridan Tittman is a very close friend and a collaborator, uh, one of the brightest guys I've met, and he's been so helpful to me in my career. And Ronnie Shaw, who I met through Sheridan, he and I are close friends, did some work together. So I, I've learned a lot from those guys, and this paper was, uh, was really a great thing. I mean, I think this comes back to this whole idea of multi-factor investing than one-factor investing. Um, you know, the idea of, okay, you can create a portfolio of single factors and put them together, or do you create a portfolio of multi-factors? There's a few different ways of doing this. I think at the end, what we did in this paper is that we showed that a portfolio of both momentum and value in one portfolio, one fund or one account, um, was sort of better than a portfolio of uh, a value uh, a strategy and a momentum strategy separately. And one of the reasons for that is, well, first of all, we know that these systematic factors have low correlations, particularly momentum and value. They're like the mirror image of one another. So. You know, what you have is when you have these two factors that move very differently from one another, that diversification creates a more stable return stream for the, for the, the strategy itself. That's one obvious thing. Um, the, and the other thing is we know that these factors experience negative returns, like they don't go up in a straight line and they're not perfectly correlated. So there's a benefit of putting these things together if their negative returns occur at different times. 
Um, so that's one thing. The, the other thing is um, by combining these approaches, what we found was we were able to substantially reduce portfolio turnover and transactions costs. Now, that's critical, particularly with momentum. One of the problems with momentum is how fast moving it is and the transaction costs associated with that. So what we find is that, and that's particularly an issue for small cap stocks because um, small company stocks, the value and momentum premiums are even more significant. Like if you're going to do value and momentum anywhere, do it in small cap stocks, but that's also where the transactions costs are higher. So we created, we showed this model of blending together value and momentum in one strategy, particularly around smaller company stocks, added a lot of value. It had better sharp ratios, better returns, much better attributes than a blend of value and momentum separately. And, and I think like, this is another obvious thing when you say it out loud, like even like most Nobel prizes, when you say them out, like I won a Nobel prize for that, like so obvious, but nobody was thinking about it beforehand. You know, that's, so a lot of this research, when you read it after the fact, it, it feels straightforward. But what we did here, if you could think about it, like the reduction in turnover in that strategy arises because a drop in the price of a stock which would trigger a purchase in a pure value strategy, right? A value strategy looks for companies that have low prices relative to book. When the price is coming down, it drops into my strategy as a value strategy and I might buy it. But if I was incorporating momentum, I probably wouldn't buy that stock because it's got negative momentum. So I'm going to slow down the purchase of the value strategy because I'm picking up that negative characteristic of momentum. And that was like just one of the key reasons why that was working amongst a few others. So that was the paper, um, which I think turned out to be quite useful in some of the strategies we were running. That's really interesting. Um, I want to ask you before we shift away from value, I want to ask you about one more of your papers, because I just actually, before we even scheduled you on the podcast, I used this paper in one of the articles I was writing where I was maybe somewhat negative on dividend investing in general. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed about dividends is investors love dividends. They love the idea that money is just being deposited in their accounts for owning stocks. But one of the things you found in this paper is maybe investors aren't getting this return they're getting in dividends because the stocks have dividends. Maybe there's something else going on behind the scenes. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. And I think that uh, I agree with you. Uh, I was always annoyed by this thing because, well, first of all, like this is another behavioral finance issue. You know, people focus on accounting income versus cash flow. You know, we all know, like from a tax point of view, particularly, you're better off like generally over long periods of time, you're better off not having accounting income come your way when you don't want it. Um, but that's a whole separate discussion for the financial advisors that might be listening to this. But from an investment point of view, um, the question around dividend investing is we went out and we looked at this and said, you know, is this a good thing? Because ultimately it's again, price to something. Price is in the numerator, dividends are in the denominator. What you're doing is you're trying to compare companies to one another that have low prices relative to their dividends. This is a form of value investing. And I'm not suggesting dividend investing is bad. I'm saying if there was only one thing you could do to select your value stocks, that would not be at the top of my list. It's kind of like your comment about composites. I, I might put dividends in there as, you know, one-tenth of or 20% of my composite, but it wouldn't be the, the driving force. Again, this is another one of these things like the way this works, assume dividends remain unchanged and an increase in the stock price would then of course result in a decrease in the dividend yield. Stock goes up, dividend yields goes down. So if you're sorting your companies on dividend yield, that stock that whose price went up 
would be not attractive to you. Um, and a decrease in the stock price results in an increase in the stock yield. So a stock that's going down in value would become more interesting to you. So the net effect is that a stock that declines in price has a higher dividend yield. Stock that increases in price has a lower dividend yield. Now, here again, when momentum and investor behavior is like the most powerful factor that exists, we all know that, and we see this in the data, stocks that are going up in value tend to go up in value a lot longer than any fundamental measure would suggest they should. And stocks that go down in value tend to go down in value a little longer than any fundamental measure would suggest they should. So you're pretty much like working yourself against momentum investing when you're doing dividend investing. And our paper showed that, and it showed that if you wanna do value investing, you're probably better off doing something like price to book or earnings yield or a few other things. Yeah, we, we found the same thing in our, in our work as well. Um, I want to shift to the opposite end of the spectrum because one of the things I've always struggled with as a quant is the idea of growth investing. Because if, if you look at growth in general, so if I just sort by you know the best sales growth or something, that group tends to underperform. But inside of that group are some of the best performers in the market. So the absolute top Facebooks of the world come from that growth group. And, and I think when you ran Gerstein Fisher, I think one of the unique things as a quant is you did run growth strategies. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could just talk about what drew you to growth and maybe how you thought about growth investing as a quant. So my son is taking an entrepreneurship class in uh, college now. And uh, we were having this conversation. And, you know, you look at things like total addressable market, who the competitors are where you might be able to differentiate. And in the end, I'd say there are a few reasons, but from a business point of view, when I started doing this in the early 90s, what I observed was that most quants were doing some form of value investing. You know, it was price to dividends, fundamental indexing, price to book, small cap value. It was just more common to be a quant, maybe, maybe because it was easier um, to uh, rank your securities based on a lot of the research and do some kind of value investing, which I think made sense. You know, I think investors should have value in their portfolio, but I decided to apply a lot of the same ideas in growth stocks and then eventually in REITs because there were very few quantitative managers that were out there doing this stuff in growth stocks. That was the first thing. The other thing was, you know, I'd been reading a lot of investor behavior research. I had a chance to interact with and meet and read a lot of the research that uh, Sheridan Titman was doing with some of his co-authors. And I was fascinated from day one about investor behavior. And what we know is that the momentum factor, which is big, um, it actually is more powerful in growth stocks than in value stocks for reasons that make sense. I mean, we can fill the rooms we're sitting in with all the research that's been done trying to explain why momentum investing has worked. But a lot of the research, most of it, is around investor behavior. So I blended together an opportunity in the market, my experience observing investor behavior firsthand as a kid growing up in the business, my interest in momentum investing and the serial correlation of security prices, and I just said, I gotta do growth stocks. In addition, um, I think like one of the explanations for this amongst others is this idea that growth stocks have a lot of ambiguity around their value. So I'm an entrepreneur. I started a business. I started it by selling my drum set. I worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, building a team, building a business, doing research, learning as much as I could. That was nowhere on my balance sheet. You know, my own company, Gerstein Fisher, the one that I sold, I had no assets. 
all the money I spent on building my brand, building my team, all the research I did, all the papers I wrote, the trademark I showed you for multi-factor, nowhere on my balance sheet, it had zero value. If you put my price in the numerator and you tried to put earnings or book value in the denominator, it did not work. But I, of course, was overconfident in my abilities. Eventually, when I did a public market transaction, all those things get recognized. Like there's plenty of evidence that goodwill, customer relationships, research patents, all these things have value when there's a transaction, but they were in the, in, they were nowhere to be found. So my own personal experience around the ambiguity of value. Now, the other thing around growth stocks and ambiguity of value is, you know, psychologists report that individuals tend to be more overconfident about their ability to do more ambiguous tasks. And this overconfidence hypothesis suggests that momentum is likely to be greater for growth stocks because analysts, um, they all have a very different opinion about what these things might be worth. And they tend to put a little more energy and overconfidence and bias into their own opinions. And that to some degree is why these stocks, when they're moving forward, tend to take a long time to reverse and go the other way. Or at least that's one of the many behavioral reasons for this. And that to me always made a lot of sense. You mentioned momentum. Do you, are there any other growth factors that you, you found were useful in growth stocks? You know, anything about fundamentals or anything like that? Or did, did you think momentum was primarily the thing that worked there? You know, if I could only pick one, it'd be momentum because, you know, again, there's a ton of information in price and this investor behavior thing is quite powerful. But yes, there are others. Um, certainly things like sales growth, looking at, and these days I'm looking at lots of things like innovation. How many patents do they have? How many H-1B visas did they file? Um, are the founders still there? Um, you know, how much skin in the game do they have? Their revenue growth. Uh, there, there's a list of maybe 30 more I could share, all of which are these days relatively easy to measure. And, you know, particularly using some of the new alternative data sources, uh, particularly our ability today to read text and organize and normalize text the way we used to do with financial data. So um, there's a lot of things that we're doing today that uh, we're using to measure growth investing. Um, and those are a few. The term multi-factor has probably been used, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20,000 times, maybe more over the last 20 years, but we never thought we'd have the guy that trademarked the multi-factor issue, which you showed us, which hold up the, hold up the trademark, show us here. Get the... <laughs> okay, yeah, this is about as worthful, uh, well, the, my most prized possession, but not worth a lot any longer. <laughs> It's not hanging up on the wall. It's actually on the floor. So, <laughs> no, that's great, though. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really, thanks for that. And, and I think, uh, again, I, the credit to who invented multi-factor factor investing goes to, you know, Merton, Miller, Fama, French, Titman, uh, Stephen Ross, and probably many others. Like, there's a lot of people who are at this for a long time. Uh, the reason I had that trademark was just, as, as I was discussing with you guys earlier, it's just that 15 years ago, nobody was talking about factor investing. It wasn't in the conversation. And uh, that trademark is just evidence. You know, as a matter of fact, I remember my marketing people back then saying, you know, because I, I ran these mutual funds that had the name multi-factor in them. And they're like, multi-factor? Like, can't you come up with anything better? 
um, like people are not gonna know what that means. And it turns out it was a big hit. When you were um, building your company, how did you get investors to stay with you during the tough times, during the times where you were underperforming, whether it be you know, over one, two, three, maybe even more years? I mean, was it just a lot of education up front on the realities of, of, of uh, you know, quantitative multi-factor investing? I mean, what was the ingredient for you and your clients then? Honesty, transparency, access. I mean, those are the things that come to mind quickly uh, with that question. Um, I think that I remember telling Richard Thaler this because um, it's interesting. Uh, that conference, he came and spoke with me to a group of about 600 investors at the bottom of the financial crisis in New York City underneath the whale at the Museum of Natural History. This was like one of the greatest moments in my career. So imagine this, you're in New York, 600 people that have entrusted me and my team with their investments. They all lost half the value of their retirement accounts, half the value of their real estate. Many of them lost their jobs. The world was on fire and nobody thought it was gonna ever recover again. And I'm sitting there and I actually had a conversation and Richard joined me and we were talking about risk premiums. And the whole conversation was like, if markets do a good job pricing risk, then low prices should mean high expected future returns. I launched the Gerstein Fisher Multi-Factor Growth Fund at that moment. And my message to all these investors were, now's a great time to increase your risk. And that was a hard message. And I remember talking to Richard about this. I'm like, look, I don't know if I'm right. I can't predict the future, but it's kind of like evidence and the scientific process. Maybe we're going through that now with COVID-19. Like, I guess we don't know 20 years from now when we look back, if all the decisions we've made will have been the right ones, but I rather the evidence and the science than some judgment call like this time's different or whatever. Um, so I guess what I would say is at that moment, being there for our investors, standing up in front of all of them at one of the most challenging times, telling the truth, being honest, and just doing what all of our research suggested should be done at that moment in time and not wavering. That same day, I asked everyone in that room, you know, I always use those meetings as opportunities to ask, you know, surveys. I said, okay, by a show of hands, Everybody raise your hand if you think the U.S. stock market and our economy will improve and do better in the next two to three years. Not one person in the room raised their hand except for my uncle. Um, and it was sort of a, a moment where, and, and I remember, this is New York City, a lot of our investors were hedge fund managers, private equity people, corporate lawyers, tax attorneys, like these are people in the know. Everybody was so incredibly negative that was the greatest moment to invest in the stock market. Um, and if I could go back in time, I guess I would have been even more um, focused. Uh, like that was the moment, uh, as opposed to other times, like perhaps the ones we're in now where, you know, things happen in reverse, where people get a little too excited uh, and maybe prices are not quite the same. Uh, I guess that's value investing in a way. Yeah, well, that kind of plays into uh, my next question, which is, you know, you have been on the record that passive investing 
you know, can be good for the vast majority of investors. I mean, it works, it's low cost, just buy an index fund and forget about it for the next, you know, 20 years and you'll probably be fine. But, you know, at the same time, given where valuations are um, with some companies, you know, now may be a time where, you know, active management is more important for some investors um, that can, you know, be in an actively managed strategy and understand that th those are different, you know, different than the market. So, I mean, do you think that's, are you, at, are you a little bit more in favor of active management at this point in time where we are today than you have been in the past? Well, I run an actively managed strategy of small cap global growth stocks. Um, that said, um, I would never argue and still to this day believe that most investors should have a large part of their portfolios, if not most of them, in a market-based strategy. It, it can never be a bad idea unless the way markets work changes. You know, Bill Sharp wrote that paper years ago, The Arithmetic of Active Management. It's a worthwhile read for everybody. It's so simple. I think he said he used the word arithmetic to illustrate how simple it was. Basically, on average, we can't all be better than average. So at the end of every trading day, the index or the market basket is the average of all of us. 50% of us will do better, 50% of us will do worse. You know, it's not precise, but you know, it's dollar weighted or whatever. So at the end of the day, if you buy the market basket, you're pretty much guaranteeing yourself to be average, which is not so bad. And then when you add in costs and taxes and frictions, you're pretty much going to end up in the top quartile most of the time. So how could anybody ever say, certainly I would never be a person who would say that buying market baskets is a bad idea. It's got to be a good idea. It's still a good idea. But one of the things that I've written about recently, and I, I've been asking a lot of people this question. I, I, I'm never able to get a great answer, and I've asked some bright people this question. Um, you know, the whole idea of efficient markets and, and indexing, you know, other than low fees, the concepts that billions of people all over the world are searching for mispriced securities. We're all getting paid handsomely to find mispriced securities. And because we're all spending all that money, time, and energy looking for mispriced securities, there are very few mispriced securities. I think Fama in his class uses an example of like a tank filled with piranhas. Uh, someone told me this story. I'm pretty sure he did this or still does this, but even if he didn't, didn't this is a good story. And he basically says, you know, what if I threw a piece of meat into this tank filled with piranhas? Well, within about two seconds, the piranhas are going to get the meat. And it's going to be a different piranha every time, but it's really hard to find that mispriced security when piranhas, which are the analysts, are all searching for mispriced securities. Now, that goes back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, now, fast forward. We went from no indexing when I started, zero. There were no ETFs. There was like one index fund that nobody used. Um, to, I don't know, I've read things that suggest something like 60% of the assets are indexed now or something crazy like that. Uh, you know, my kids are studying finance. I don't want them to become an analyst. I'm an analyst. Um, you know, it's hard to make money as an analyst. Nobody wants to pay analysts anymore. So there are fewer analysts searching for mispriced securities today than there were way back when. So the question I have and I don't have a good answer, but the question I have is, in a world where not a lot of people are searching for mispriced securities, um, we're all just accepting market prices and indexing, you know, shouldn't there be an opportunity to identify mispriced securities? Shouldn't it be 
maybe a little bit easier. Now, it's always going to be 50-50, but the distribution around that average, I think, should be wider. Those that get it right will be more right, and those that get it wrong will be more wrong in an environment where there are fewer of us doing the work. And I believe that makes sense to me, and I think to some others. So I think that now's probably a reasonable time, much more so than you know 30 years ago, um, to consider, um, or 10 years ago, to consider having some part of a portfolio attempting to search for mispriced securities. I want to shift and talk about your new firm, Clint Capital. You mentioned it earlier. Um, you know, one of the things I always, my, my friends always tell me as a quant is, you know, you guys don't get innovation. You know, you can sit here and look at value or balance sheets or financial statements or something like that, but quants just can't handle innovation. And it, so it's, it's very unique to me that you've decided to tackle innovation. And I'm wondering sort of what led you in that direction towards innovation. I think, thanks for that. You know, so quant capital is a word that we blended together. It's a blend between the word quant and entrepreneur. And the idea that the sort of ent in Quent is about these entrepreneurial characteristics that are hard to measure. Um, uh, in my podcast, The Q Factor, uh, I recently interviewed the person who runs the entrepreneurship program at Babson University. Um, you know, Babson University is probably known to be one of the, if not the top performing entrepreneurship school on the planet. And I said, of all these years, you guys doing this, all the students in and out, you must know how to identify the great entrepreneurs. And he said, nope, we don't. Um, basically, like, it's really hard to do. Like, you can't just put it in a box. Oh, they have grit and they did this and went to this. You know, like, entrepreneurs are hard to find. It's hard to measure these entrepreneurial characteristics. But you know when you stumble onto one and you're in an environment where the place just feels like it's on fire. There's something going on there that you would like to be able to measure. So now in the world we live in today with all these alternative data sources, you know, is there something predictive about employee reviews that we can read? Is there something predictive about the amount of money companies spend on brands that we can identify? Is there something predictive about the patents they file, the research and development expenses they have? A lot of these things that are hard to measure or intangible, you know, when we go and read over and look at the uh, disclosures and commentaries of these businesses, is there something in there that we can normalize and organize? And when we look back over the last 10 and 15 years of this data we now have, you know, are these factors, are these powerful signals that have a good economic framework for why they're happening. So I'm on a journey that's far from complete. Um, I'm having a blast, but I would just say my own experience as an entrepreneur and portfolio manager, and also someone who's been managing small cap growth stocks for 30 years and looking back at how hard it was, you know, like the R squareds on the traditional models, like it just doesn't, like the normal stuff we all do for small cap growth stocks, it just doesn't work. So. Um, I guess I'm an innovator, uh, and that's what led me to it. And I do believe we can do some interesting things in portfolios to identify and invest in innovative businesses. It, it continues to amaze me how much data there is now. You think about things, oh, they can't measure that, and then you see a data set that measures it. I mean, do you think we're at the point right now, like, are you running a purely quantitative long part of your strategy? Are we at the point where there's enough data, or do you have to bring some qualitative factors into it? There is some judgment and qualitative factors in what we're doing. Um, it, 
it wouldn't be this simple, but I'd say it's probably like two parts quant and one part qual. Um, but like a lot of quants or those of us that like to use technology and systems to organize things, you know, once we find ourselves doing something over and over again, we'll probably systematize it. So I, I think of quantitative investing more as like systematic investing. Um, I think perhaps people often think of quantitative investing as evidence-based investing. But I think it's going to be hard to find good evidence on a lot of the things that we're doing for these small growth businesses. Um, we can systematize the process, but it may be hard to have evidence. And um, look, there's a lot of this data, like, you know, what credit card transactions data, for example. Um, you know, that it seems logical that that stuff makes sense, right? Like, why wait to the end of a quarter when you could get it tomorrow? Um, you know, and there's probably something telling about, you know, revenue, um, but, or weather, uh, or a variety of other things. But, um, you know, I don't think we have enough data to look back and say, it's, you know, there's evidence. I, I was talking to, uh, in, a, in another podcast episode of mine, I had a chance to interview Bob Merton, um, who's another amazing man from in finance. And, you know, he said, he said, Greg, you know how long you would need for, to know whether or not I'm a good money manager, he said to me. And uh, he said something like 100 years. You know, he was just saying, like, it takes so damn long to have any statistical significance in anything any of us are doing that every now and then you just have to have, you know, a reasonable strategy that's well thought out, a good economic framework for what you're doing, some stories you can tell about why you're doing it, some evidence, hopefully a good amount of years. But, you know, every now and then you just have to try things. It's funny. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Corey Hostein. He's a friend of ours, but uh, he wrote an interesting paper where he, he looked at that idea and he was trying to figure out whether the price to book is dead. And, you know, in the paper, he realized, you know, the amount of time it would take to decide whether the price to book is dead is longer than the investing lifetime of anybody who's actually using the price to book. So it just goes to show, I mean, the, the time frames have to be so long with this stuff. It, it's very difficult. Um, Absolutely. And that's where entrepreneurs come in. You know, the, 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 the willingness to take risk to iterate, to make changes, to fail a little, not fail a lot, you know, like someone's got to give it a shot. I'm wondering, uh, just one more question on your investment strategy. I was interested on the short side. You know, you've talked about a lot of the things you use on the long side to identify innovative companies. And I'm wondering what you think about the short side. I mean, are you shorting innovative companies, but, you know, trying to find things where their growth might not continue? Or are you shorting something else against the innovative companies? I'm just wondering how you, how you think about the short side of the portfolio. Yeah, well, at the highest level, I think about the shorts as giving me courage to lever my longs. Um, you know, so think about the shorts perhaps as a risk management tool from that point of view. And hey, we talked about investor behavior. We all fall subject to it. So, you know, if I'm going to have a levered long portfolio, then uh, I may want to have some protection on the way down to give me the courage I need to do that. But, but more on the other side of things, yeah, I mean, I think if you think about companies that have incredible cultures with um, just incredible respect and honor for their customers um, with, uh, you know, really high levels of innovation and uh, risk taking and the, the kinds of environments that those companies have. And then perhaps on the flip side, you might think of these sort of more large, slow moving bureaucratic businesses that have a very difficult time innovating or even creating environments where they can attract and retain innovative people. Um, and uh, I mean, those are just some obvious things I'd say out loud and, and perhaps, you know, shorting these 
companies that are being disrupted and being along the companies that are doing the disrupting would be like an obvious thing to think about. Um, it's not that perfect. And I guess diversification helps. Um, but I think that uh, the, the risk management element of the shorting, as well as identifying these fast growing, smaller, global, entrepreneurial, you know, incredible businesses that are just trying to knock the cover off the ball in a whole new category um, and taking market share away from those larger, slow moving bureaucratic businesses. Those are things I'm thinking a lot about. Just for the last question, this is a, a sort of standard closing question we have of all our guests. So we want to ask you, and I think a lot of what you've talked about over the past hour or so could answer this question, but based on your you know, experience in the markets, if you could impart one piece of wisdom uh, or teach one lesson to the average investor, um, what would that be? Sit on your hands. You know, it's underrated, this investor behavior thing, but the hardest thing for people to do is nothing. It is by far the hardest thing to do. It's also really hard for people like us that are in the industry. I think our investors expect us to you know, buy something, sell something, do something, move some something around. But more often than not, doing nothing is the best advice. You know, build a solid, well thought out strategy. You know, sure, keep an eye on it, make some adjustments here and there, but basically, Holding things for long periods of time is usually a good recipe. And the only other thing I would say is save more. So buy things and hold them for long periods of time and save more. It's great, Greg. Thank you. If people want to learn more about um, your firm and what you're working on, where can they go to learn more? Well, thank you, Justin, and thank you, Jack, again for having me. It's great that you guys do this for your audience. Um, I know how useful it probably is. Uh, to learn more about Quent Capital and my research, um, if you go to quentcapital.com, that's Q-U-E-N-T capital.com, and when you get there, you'll also find a link to our podcast, which is theqfactor.com. Uh, I have a series of episodes there that talk a lot about our research and then finally, there's a blog that I write there uh, called Investing with Innovation. So quentcapital.com, and then you'll find those other two links. Uh, those are some of the best ways to learn about the work that we're doing at Quent Capital. That's great, Greg. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.